from magical movies. All it takes, takes is faith and trust. Oh, and something I forgot. To unforgettable adventures. Well, once there was a princess. I'm an outlaw, that's what. That's no life for a lovely lady always on the run. From the thrill of the theater to the comfort of your home. Do you want to build a snowman? You can always count on something new from Disney. That's why they call me Thumper. For the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stuff. Look, have I got it? The magic feather. Now you can fly. Ohana means family. Just a sec. Buzz, will you get up here and give me a hand? <laughs> I'm taking you someplace pretty special. You won't find him here. <laughs> the king has returned. Join us for discussion and commentary as we open the Disney Vault with your hosts, Steve Glosson and Teresa Delgado. Well, I don't know about commentary, but we've definitely got some discussion on this episode of Disney Vault Talk. So glad to be back with you with the most magical podcast in the Goliverse, nay, on the internet. My name is Steve Glosson, and this is Disney Vault Talk, and we are on this episode discussing... The Disney animated feature, Home on the Range. Who'd have thunk it? The 45th animated feature from Disney. We'll be talking about that and so much more. And to do that with me, of course, is the heart and soul of Disney Vault Talk. Ladies and gentlemen, she is the lovely, the talented, the powerful, Teresa Delgado. Hello, Teresa. We're back. We're, ba- <laughs> We're back, baby. Woo! <laughs> welcome, welcome home. Yay. <laughs> it's good to have you. How are things? Things are good. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this movie, not for the reasons many people may think. <laughs> Just because. Just to get it out of the way, maybe? Uh, maybe, or because there are some funny things, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Um, now, you went to Disneyland recently. I sure did. How was that? And I got Steve a magic thing he does not have. What? I didn't know about a magic thing I don't have. Yes, you do. It's a Halloween R2-D2 oh, yes. thingy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It looks so cool. It is cool looking. I, I have been sucked into Disney's little special droids that they put out. Um, it started, I think, with last year's holiday droid. Mm-hmm. And then um, someone actually picked up for me. Well, I'll say who it is. It was my good buddy Paolo uh, from um, out that way. He and his mom had gone to Disneyland. Paolo was there with his band, and he picked up the uh, 60th anniversary edition. Oh, nice. One. And um, and there's one or two others that I have that I'm just like, they're so cool. They're great. I dig them. And so thank you for that. Looking forward yeah, to no adding problem. that to the old Star Wars collection. And um, as quickly as possible. But you had fun. You saw the Skywalking Through Neverland gang. 
Sure did. That was a lot of fun. We got to spend a good bunch of time with them. And I proceeded to send you pictures that was either really nice of me or really mean. Oh. Uh, I can't decide which. Well. Because I got to meet Darkwing Duck. Mm-hmm. So you got pictures of that. Mm-hmm. Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Mm-hmm. And then Tower of Terror Goofy. Hmm. Which you will probably never ever get to see because Tower of Terror at Disneyland is changing mm-hmm. and this was like his last appearance oh. ever. But now Tower of Terror in Hollywood Studios is still going to be Tower of Terror, correct? Correct, but they've never had Goofy in a Tower of Terror outfit at Disney World before, at least that I'm aware of. Well, maybe they will. Maybe all that will change. Maybe. Let's hope. Here's the, But here's the thing. Now... This is this is what I'm looking at here. I'm I'm scrolling through. I'm watching. I'm you, you sent me a picture of Greg watching the Cubs. Cubs win. Cubs win. Um, that you, was so fun. You got the Darkwing Duck there. I was really super excited for you to get to meet Darkwing Duck. Um, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I know you love the Chippendale, so I was excited for you with that. Um, the jealousy didn't start to come on until here. You are with Max. Oh yeah, that was that was awesome. I got to play tic tac toe by throwing um, stuffed chipmunks mm-hmm. at like a tic tac toe board with Max, and so I would throw one, and he would throw one. So we were playing games together, and then I won. Oh, well, well, congratulations! <laughs> and and here's the thing: then you send the ter- Tower of Terror Goofy, which is really cool. It's really great to see Goofy there. Uh, you were there with Rabbit. Mm, oh, you know. oh my gosh! I almost, I seriously, I think I did cry a little. Uh, can I tell the story? Yeah, really quick. So, Rabbit is one of the Winnie the Pooh characters that you never see. You see Pooh, Eeyore, Tigger, and Piglet usually, and usually it's only Tigger and Pooh Bear. And Eeyore makes appearances. Piglet's kind of rare, but. You never see Rabbit, and I've seen pictures of him out, and it's usually when they're training new character people and everything, and you'll see him in, like, the parades, mm-hmm. and that's it. Well, I was walking by. We got out of Haunted Mansion, and I saw a Rabbit, and he was greeting with Pooh Bear, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I jumped in line, and I'm just talking about Rabbit over and over and over, and the cast member heard me, and he was like, well, Rabbit's getting ready to leave in five minutes, so I don't know if you'll get to see him because it was a little bit of a long line, and I'm like, oh, Okay, well, I'll just stay here anyway, just in case. (laughs) And so I stayed in line, and then we moved a little bit forward, and then there was another cast member, this girl, further up, and I was talking about Rabbit to her. And she said, well, he's leaving in like five minutes, but he'll be back for his last session of the day in 45 minutes from now. And I'm like, okay. And I said, well, if I don't get to see him, then I will just sit here in this line and be the first one. I'll wait for like 45 minutes until he comes back. And she was like, you're going to wait for 45 minutes? And I said, yes. And Greg was looking at her like, you don't understand. Like, (laughs) she will wait. And so I'm already, I mean, I'm fine. I don't care. There's like little snacks around. Greg can go get snacks. I can sit down and just sit and, Mm -hmm. you know, play on my phone and wait. And then she leaves and Rabbit's getting ready to leave. And she says something to him. You know, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just watching. And Rabbit looks up and he looks at me and he looks at her and he looks at me and he just like strolls right over to me, sort of bouncy. And he comes straight up to me and he just gives me this huge hug. 
And I lost it. I was just like, oh, my God. Ah! And then he let me take pictures and all this stuff. And he gave me the little character kisses and all the things. And I was just like, oh, I can't even. I don't even know what just happened. <laughs> and then in the pictures later, you can see the cast member that went and told him something in the background. Mm-hmm. And the smile on her face is so big. Yeah. Because I was just beside myself. I, she went over and I, told she went over and told Rabbit, this girl is gonna sit and wait until you're back out here. That's how much she wants to meet you. Can we take thirty seconds to go meet this this person? Mm-hmm. Bless him. Yeah, so I um it was I just couldn't stop talking mm-hmm. about Rabbit for forever. And it was it, you can tell in that picture my pure joy. And I yeah. think it's on the Vault Talk Facebook page, I'm pretty sure, and it also might be on the vault talk instagram as well um i'm gonna go look and see it is it's on the vault talk instagram it's about six pictures back and you can see the absolute pure joy and you i posted the one where you can see the cast member in the background i mean i i was just i lost it well here's the thing you're sitting there with chip and dale rescue rangers and you're just like oh this is fun you're there with max you're like oh this is cute you're there with Tower Tear Goofy, and you're all doing your little poses and everything, and that's fantastic. But the but right with with Rabbit, it's just this big hug, and there's just like childlike joy and wonder on your face, and I was just so happy for you. I really was. I'm like, well, what? That's fantastic. So happy for Teresa. It was ill. But oh, then, even now, like my eyes. <laughs> but then, then what I do? I get a video. And it's old Goofy, and he's just kind of oh, yeah. walking down the sidewalk, walking by some people and skipping along. And then he waves to the camera, and he makes this motion like, follow me. You know, the old classic Disney character like, hey, look over at the magic that's happening over here. And then I get a picture, and there is classic Goofy standing arm in arm with the heart and soul of Disney Vault Talk, Teresa Delgado. I have never met Goofy. He is my favorite of all time. Of of cartoon characters. Favorite of all time. And and that is what I want more than anything else in this world. Is to meet Goofy. And it has not happened. And one day it will. We're going to make it happen one day. And I have to be there. Because I am going... like. The rabbit face that I had is going to be the same when I get to see you meet Goofy. I know it. Like, I'm going to cry. Well, that you're going to be so happy. That is like the, that uh, you know, that's like the one, like, I don't, like, look, I love the characters. I think they're great. But the only one who I just desperately, desperately want to take the time to wait in line for and everything else would be Goofy. Because he is he is my absolute favorite of all time. And, you know, this is a show that has always made dreams come true for me. I mean, early on in our existence, we got to talk to Bill Farmer, the voice of Goofy, and it was fantastic. It was a glorious time in my life. And you remember how starstruck I was mm-hmm. when we were just kind of doing I the do. pre-interview. <laughs> so, yeah. And so that's the only picture I got from you. Everything I was just so happy for you, and I was glad that you were out there having a good time. And then I got the goofy picture. I'm like, well, now I'm jealous. Now, I, now it has turned to pure jealousy, you know. So, but that's great. I mean, I I can be jealous and still be happy for you. I like how he had his he had his ear up. He mm-hmm. like grabbed his ear. Yeah. Like flipped it up. I was like, you're yep. silly, goofy. 
He's a he's a silly goofy. He sure is. Pardon Gar- the cat. <laughs> Gosh. What if I Pardon just photoshopped my face in over your face? <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> but you should do that. Be like there's that time that I didn't meet Goofy, but I pretended I did. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Well, we've got a lot to talk about on this episode and we've got we've got a ton of email. We may have to just do a clear out show one of these days, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have some stuff to talk about from the mailbag, so uh, let's jump into that. When you mail a letter, you can send it anywhere. On foot, by truck, by aeroplane, the postman gets it there. So write a letter to a friend, maybe she'll write you. No matter what, you always know the mail must go through. We need those letters. From General Lee, dear son, we're waiting for the Huns at the pass. It would mean a lot if you'd come and back us up. Oh, can you read this? There's no pictures. Then I'll put that flea in a box, and then I'll put that box inside of another box, and then I'll mail that box to myself. And when it arrives, ah, I'll smash it with a hammer. All right, what do we got here, Teresa? All right, we have an email from our friend David. And so... Everything we're going to be talking about in this email section is centered around movie releases and the Disney vault. So I expect my good friend, the vault keeper, to show up at some point during this discussion. (laughs) But let me read this really quick. He says, greetings, Teresa and Steve. As much as we all enjoy my ridiculous emails, I actually have a serious on-topic question for this week. Disney's formula in the past has been that after a movie has a run in the theaters, it gets released to DVD slash Blu-ray then goes back into the vault for a period of time. After a hibernation in the vault, it gets remastered with new features and gets re-released. This year, Disney has skipped the vault and has been re-releasing movies on DVD and Blu-ray just a few months after their first release. Specifically, this has happened with two of their biggest releases this year, Star Wars The Force Awakens and the live-action Jungle Book. They both got released to DVD, Blu-ray earlier this year, and then a few months later re-released as Super Ultra Collector 3D Blu-ray sets with new features. Now I'm hesitant to buy any new release Disney movies. I'd like to pick up Finding Dory, but I don't want to buy it again in three months to get the super ultra collector Finding Dory set. Help me, Stephen Teresa. Do I buy Finding Dory now or should I wait? Well, what you're talking about, David, is what they do with animated movies. Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily true for live action or even Pixar. Right. So... I would say with Finding Dory, it's kind of a toss-up, but you're probably safe. But as far as their typical pattern, we don't usually see that with live action or with Pixar movies because they very rarely talk about a live action movie coming out of the vault. It just doesn't, they don't, the vault is for animated regular movies, like the numbered films. Yeah, I don't really like getting things cluttered up with a lot of people in live action down here. Just there seems, he is. It just seems a lot of... A lot of hassle, a lot of moving folks around and that sort of thing. Um, you never know what might be in the vault, though. We might dust some stuff off every now and again and send it out. Or we might just decide to pull some things away from you. The vault keeper giveth, and the vault keeper taketh away. <laughs> and on that note, we got a Facebook question <laughs> from Drew White. And he asked, are Little Mermaid and Sleeping Beauty going back into the vault anytime soon? I would just like to clear up that we are purely a fan-based podcast. We have no connections with the actual vault, much less know what they're going to do. <clears throat> um, I wish we did, but we don't. Well, um, 
I want to I want to jump back to David's email really quickly about the live action stuff. Um, he he brings up Star Wars: The Force Awakens, uh, you know, and, and obviously Star Wars is a Disney property now. It, it's a it's a new thing. It's live action. Um, I, I only know what Lucasfilm used to do with Star Wars, and that is they would release on the latest technology and have a big rollout for a little while, and then that would go away, and and then they may do a second or third release on that type of technology, whether it be VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, Blu-ray, whatever the case may be. Um, but whenever they re-released it, there would always be something new and special on there. What we've seen with The Force Awakens this year alone has been, here's the big DVD slash Blu-ray release, and then just this past week, um, here's the 3D Blu-ray collector set that had three extra special features, basically. Um, so I don't know that these things will go back into the vault, per se. Um, I think that you'll always be able to buy a Star Wars movie now is, is kind of where we're at. And, um, and I just speak of that based on my experience with Lucasfilm in general because they Disney's done a good job of treating these properties that they own... Um, like your Lucasfilm, like your Marvel, as almost completely separate studios. I know people think of Disney now when they think of Marvel movies, but they've done, you know, it's, they do a really good job of keeping their distance out of the distribution and everything and not doing it like classic Disney does things, if that makes sense at all. It does to me. Besides, Star Wars likes for people to buy 10 different versions of the same movie. That's true. But Guilty right here. Right. But again, <laughs> but again, even with the VHS releases back in the day, there was always something special added to them that wasn't on the previous one. Um, mm -hmm. And it was the same way with their DVD releases. It was the same way with the Blu-ray release. You know, when Star Wars first, when the original trilogy first came out on DVD, there were a lot of cool little special features, a lot of secret things you could do, blooper reels and that sort of thing. And that came Remember the ones that had the original theatrical version and the the special that editions? That was the that was the second release of the DVD series, yeah. And um and the and the original theatrical versions were released as part of a special feature and and you know that was something that was done just for the fans. Of course fans weren't happy about that. They're like, "Why can't we get him in high definition? Why can't we get a better transfer?" Um, but complain, complain, complain. Uh, there's always going to be something to complain about for with fans, but um, but there was, but again, it was there was a reason to buy it. It was new. It was different. Then the Blu-rays hit, and I mean, when that when that entire saga hit as Blu-ray, the only thing people were complaining about was the box art, you know, because you could not complain about the transfers. You could not complain about um the special features there's a whole disc that's nothing but like 90 minutes to an to two hours worth of just star wars spoofs and commercials and that sort of thing you just it just goes on a continuous loop and it is amazing um so yeah i i just you know that that's one thing that lucasfilm always made sure to do with those copies is there would always be something new something special some hook to get you in not just new packaging and um disney hasn't been to my knowledge, as um, as ardent at that style of re-releasing, 
you know, and I think that's the purpose for the vault concept is we're going to release it. And then once it's been out for a while, we're going to put it back in the vault for X amount of years. And then that way people will need a new copy. People will need this thing again. Um, I think the distribution, the digital distribution of movies may, and we've talked about this, we've touched on this before, may alter the way the vault works, mm-hmm. you know, from here on out. Um, you know, obviously you can make things unavailable digitally, sure. But the idea of the idea of it being completely unavailable anymore um, may may go the, may go to the wayside, and having to pay an exorbitant amount of money for a movie that you know everyone apparently has. <laughs> right. What's really funny to me is to look on eBay and see what people are trying to sell VHS copies of Disney movies for. Oh, I love that. That's great. Like fifteen hundred dollars for. The Lion King, and it's like, really? Like, are you really going to get that? For a VHS, of all things. I know, right? Well, weird. Well, now, if it was on Betamax, might have it. <laughs> right, right. Laser might disc intrigue might, me a little more. Laser disc might bring a pretty penny. Right. So, so along with this, we had. I don't know where it was, whether it was an email, a Twitter message, a tweet, a Instagram comment, a Facebook, I don't know mm-hmm. where it was, but I remember. Somebody asked us if there was a list that we could direct them to that showed what was in the vault, what is coming out of the vault, and when things are going back into the vault. And I replied to them, don't know where, but that Disney does not have a published list. They just make these decisions and they make announcements on their Twitter and commercials on TV, and you just have to be paying attention. You know, uh, they don't have a list, so there's not one. You know, they've already started their next round of, like, re-releases with Snow White. And I don't remember what it's called, you know, Super Deluxe Diamond Platinum Rainbow Edition. Um, (laughs) I made that up. I'm with you. I I was like, like, go on. What other other editions are there? The Unicorn Edition. Exactly. Um, But... We don't know, so we know as much as you know, and when I hear about this stuff, we put it, we talk about it on the shows, and I also tweet out that information, so unfortunately, there's not a list Mm -hmm. that you can go to, and I feel really, I don't know why I feel bad about that, it's not my fault. No, it's not your fault, you Um. do it. I will direct our our good listeners to wikihow.com slash keep dash tracks dash of dash the dash disney dash vault it's an article entitled how to keep track of the disney vault and here we go <laughs> it looks like <laughs> it looks like an old film strip like you would have watched in uh with, with some of the artwork method one understanding the disney vault system one <laughs> research the disney vault system disney's vault system means putting certain movies on a moratorium so that they are not available for purchase or digital viewing until they're released from the vault. That's right. Generally, Disney puts movies in a seven-year vault hold and then releases them. The reasoning behind this is that every seven years, a new generation of two- to seven-year-old children comes of age and is ready to enjoy the films. Generally, two movies are released a year. There is a note here, though. Others believe that Disney's vault system was created to create scarcity. Because the scarcity encourages people to rush out and buy the DVDs and Blu-ray discs when they are released, since they are not available at the time. 
Two, memorize the movies in the vault. <laughs> and it's a picture of a woman sitting there, and there's a thought bubble, and there's a picture of, Diz- of Dumbo, Cinderella, and the Lion King in her little thought bubble. She's got a little finger over her mouth like, hmm, I'm memorizing these movies. Um, uh, let's see what, not every movie goes in and out of the vault. Uh-oh, my scrolling has, has uh-oh, what's happening here? Weird things popping up. Um, not every movie goes in and out of the vault system, and you have to know which movies you should be keeping track of uh, in the vault. Currently, I don't know when this, I didn't see a date on this, the movies included in the vault system are the following. This is in the vault system now, not necessarily in the vault. According to this article, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, The Jungle Book, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Basically, it's all the classics. Number three, if memorizing, if learning the vault system and memorizing the movies in the vault wasn't enough, number three, keep a spreadsheet of the vault schedule. So get out your Excel, get your Google Doc sheets out, and keep a spreadsheet. Uh, Method two, pay attention to releases. Document document current releases. Document the releases of new movies. Calculate a a rough estimate. Research when a movie was released. If you want to track when the movie will be re-released, take note of the last time it was released. Thank you. Wow. Thanks Met, for yeah. that. So there that is. Um there's like this is a whole big thing. This is probably one of the more ridiculously serious things about anything that I've ever read in my life. <laughs> so this was wikihow.com. Um <laughs> Shaz Bazaar asks, is scarcity next to velocity? Yeah, funny, and, funny. And, and velocity is broken into two parts high velocity and low velocity it's hard to say velocity so <laughs> hey we got some disney watch don't we yep hey watch it watch it watch it watch yourself Ooh, who goes there watch it 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 watch so much happening. Oh my gosh, so much stuff. So sorry if we're here for a while, but it's been a while. Been a while. So we got... No. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you can sing Home on the Range. Mm, been a while. <laughs> All right, so we got a really amazing trailer for Beauty and the Beast. Have you seen this? Have I seen this? I think everyone has seen this. That broke the internet, didn't it? It's Star set, Wars breaks the internet, Steve. It set a record. It set a record. Did for, it really? Yeah, for the most watched, the most quickly. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, but it's. A, I just want to talk about it briefly. It's a gorgeous trailer. I love that it opens with the same music that the movie opens with. That's one of my favorite pieces of music ever. Is the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Go on. No, I have to listen. Papa? 
must leave here. This castle is alive. Who's there? Do you wish to take your father's place? Come into the light. Show me the girl. Oh, okay. Yeah. Chills. So many chills. And I'm really excited for it. Emma Watson looks like she's going to be a fantastic Belle. Uh, you know, I did have somebody say that they didn't like, they didn't like it. They didn't like Emma Watson being Belle because Emma Watson is British and she's not French. And I, I was like, okay. And I processed for a minute and then I'm like, what, wait, Belle doesn't have a French accent in the Disney animated version. So what does it matter? Right. They all sound very American in the, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't understand that point. Uh, but they there was a cool thing on BuzzFeed where they did like a shot to shot of the original animated trailer or like pieces and the the new trailer for the live action and they kept so many things like the same kind of shot. I mean, look, this looks like a almost a shot for shot remake just in a live action form. Mm -hmm. Um based on what we're seeing and um if I have any problem with this trailer and with the look of this thing, it's uh, Mrs. Potts kind of freaks and me Chip. out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mrs. Potts and Chip. I hundred percent agree. <laughs> Chip looks creepy. Mrs. Potts looks creepy as well. Like it just like eh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, no, <laughs> but I don't mind telling you. I you know with the teaser trailer that came out a while back, as as it hit those final. Yeah, look, there's been a lot of to-do made about, you know, the 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 single-note piano, you know, trying to evoke a, an emotional response and that sort of thing. Um, when they hit that tale as old as time, I, I mean, tears. I, I welled up with tears, and this was no different watching this trailer. I mean, it was just so... Um, everyone knows my story with this movie, how much I love it. And I was like texting my niece. I'm like, have you seen the trailer? It's amazing. And I sent her a link and she's like, oh my gosh, when are we going? You know, it's just like um, this movie, I didn't realize the popularity and maybe it, it might just be that it's Emma Watson. I don't know. But there's something because it was the, the most watched in the most, in the least amount of time, apparently the other day. Um, and, and I don't know if it's the, the generation of when it was released. I don't know if it just hits a sweet spot of people that are the right age right now to, to really get the nostalgia itch from it scratched or if it's the Emma Watson thing or if it's just a, a perfect storm of all these things. But I know that this movie has a special, the, you know, the, the animated version has a real special place in my heart. And just watching this, I'm like, for the first time, I get why they're doing live action versions of these classic cartoons, mm -hmm. you know? And and I and I don't question it. I'm like, okay, I'm there, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I'm really excited for it. it. Comes out just after my birthday, so I'm pretty excited. Happy birthday! Thank. Well, not yet. <laughs> um. So then, yesterday, actually, we got a trailer for something very near and dear to my heart, and that is the Cars Three teaser trailer. And just so that you know what the film is about, which I think not a lot of people know, the upcoming film will 
focus on McQueen, who's voiced by Owen Wilson, enlisting his new friend Cruz Ramirez as a technician to compete against a new generation of racers. Mater, Sally, Ramon will all return, and it's slated to release on June 16th. Steve, this trailer made me cry. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I've not so seen if you it. Have, well, you can. There's not a whole lot for our listeners to hear, and I will post it on our Facebook page. But you can play it. It's okay. in the link, and maybe even if you see it, you'll understand why it made me cry. But you can go ahead and play it. There's there's a little, just mostly like car sounds. From this moment, everything will change. And the moment they're talking about is, is a McQueen, McQueen wrecks, and he he wrecks bad. He's flipping in the air. You can see pieces of his car flying off. And I started crying because I'm like, what happened to McQueen? And in my, I looked at Greg and I was like, is he dead? <laughs> like, I lost it. I, I so, know. Because... I, this I'm, movie means so much to me. Uh, well, here's I, I mm, see, we may not get to home on the range because I want to I want to ask you about that. Cars is generally both of them really are generally looked at as the weakest of the Pixar movies by a lot of people kind of our age. Kids love them, and and they've sold a butt ton of merchandise. And I mean, you know, kids still buy cars, toys, and that sort of thing, but. What what makes why is why is Cars so very special to you? The story in Cars, and we'll get to it when we talk about when we jump into Pixar movies eventually. But the story in Cars to me is a lot. You know, it's you know about a person that you know has this life of privilege and lives in this completely different world, and gets thrown into a place where there's not accolades you have to work as a team and you're you're a part of a family and everything's about something bigger than yourself and learning to learning to readjust the way that you see life and understanding that there's more to life than money and fame and that the people that you meet along the way and the memories that you make are the most important part of life and this movie has always held that very special place for me it's funny and I attach to the characters. Uh, Sally and Lightning are probably my favorite Disney couple of all time. Um, just the way that she that she gets through to him and takes him on that drive, and he finally gets to understand like what is happening. And his friendship with Mater is just so beautiful in a ridiculous way, but it is. And um, Cars Two was you know a lot weaker, but. The original Cars movie is amazing, but like Lightning McQueen just means so much to me as a character, and it's why I love Cars Land. It's part of the reason I love Disneyland. It's the reason I have five million pictures with Lightning. Uh, Greg and I had our wedding, you know, pictures done at the Cars section of the Art of Animation Hotel. Uh, mo some of my favorite wedding 
pictures are from that area where we pose with all the different characters. And it's just like, for me and Greg, it's a big part of our relationship. And it's just, oh, like, and him, him crashing like that, his first crash in the first film was not like this. Mm-mm. This one, this one tears my heart apart because he's broken. You know, and oh my well, God. and the, if you listen to the, um, if you hear the commentary in the background, they're saying McQueen is fading fast, and mm-hmm. so you get the idea that what we're dealing with here is an aging Lightning McQueen, who may be on his last leg, and who has to take basically the Doc role mm-hmm. in, in this movie. Um, the uh, the Cars two. Do you do you like it? I do. I I, I have it's sentimental for me because it's mm-hmm. the first film Greg and I ever saw together. Okay. Uh, as a couple, but I like it. I don't love it. Okay. But See, I, I like think that it. I think that's the one even more than Cars that a lot of people just kind of look and say, "Well, this isn't that great." And I've never watched Cars two. Cars two. It's it's a fun watch. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a it's a good movie. I mean, all Pixar movies are pretty much good movies. So it was good. It had some new characters that I really liked, which was kind of cool. And, um, you know, I like that. And I like the circuit of racing that they went on for this one. Uh, Fillmore has a just amazing sort of very on the side role. Fillmore is the hippie bus, the VW bus. He's my favorite character. And, you know, outside of Lightning, but Fillmore. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, I love Fillmore. And he has this just role in this movie, and it's so beyond amazingly ridiculous. Uh, but, yeah, Cars 2 is good. It's just not as good. And, honestly, when I heard they were making Cars 2, I was like, ooh, baby Lightning and Sally babies. <laughs> you know, that's what I was thought we were going to see. And then I was, I was like, darn. Well, here's the thing. Pixar has a way of ripping our hearts out of our chests when we watch their movies. In fact, it's become a it's become a hallmark of Pixar almost to like, all right, how how much can we make people cry when they watch this now? And mm-hmm. you know, and it seems like they're going for this again, more of a more of a grown-up version, I guess, of Cars. And and, and I say that with um with with no tongue in any cheek, I really do think that what they're going for here is, is, is going back to a depth of story just based on this teaser. Mm-hmm. You know? I think this is returning to the original cars feel, mm-hmm. which is going to be very good. And it's only going to make, you know, the cars franchise stronger and there's going to be tons more toys. Not to mention cars gives me a reason to buy all kinds of cars, actual like cars toys, right? which I love buying. <laughs> So I'm completely okay with that. I collected all of the Cars McDonald's mm-hmm. toys to get all the characters. I got all, all of right. them. And I co- I go and buy frequently the Disney Cars, like Hot Wheels yeah. type cars, and try to get different ones. And there's some I never got, and I'm super bummed that I never got them. And I mean, if you tried to get them all, you'd be, you'd be swimming in cars. Yeah. So... Um- I've been tempted to buy the, um, you know, they've got them done up. Some they've got some done up as uh, Star Wars characters. I have, and, I and, have almost and, all of those. And I was tempted to get into those, but now of course I missed that boat, so I'll just stick with my Hot Wheels. Those were Star amazing. Wars. Yeah, those were those were great. Um, I had to get those. 
that crossover was ridiculous. Oh, I love that. Um, <gasps> so Cars 3 looks like it's going to be the Toy Story 3 of the Cars franchise. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we've also got some uh, some Animal Kingdom news. We do, and I just wanted to hit on this really quick, but basically Disney has officially said that Avatar... Avatar Land in Animal Kingdom will be opening in the summer of 2017. You know, it's taken them a long time to really put this together, but the last time we were there, they were making a lot of progress. It's going to be interesting because when Pandora, the world of Avatar, opens in the summer of 2017, that's going to be around the same time that James Cameron is going to start working on the sequels to the original Avatar movie. And they're going to start filming in early 2017. Mm -hmm. The first one of those is scheduled to be released Christmas of 2018 at the earliest. So there's going to be a little bit of synergy there, but the parks are really going to have to drive that Avatar franchise for Cameron so that people will be excited about seeing the new film. There is a cool picture in this article and you know what, we'll link to it um, on Facebook. I'll toss it over there, but there's a cool picture of the bridge and this particular bridge. It looks really neat. This is the bridge that's going to connect animal kingdom to the avatar area. So you're going to have to walk over it. I'm guessing Mm -hmm. to go over to the avatar Pandora area. But from what I've heard and the, the animatronics and everything that are going to be over there, it's going to be stunning. So I'm, I'm excited because I'm not even a huge Avatar movie fan at, by any means. I, don't I think know I've who, seen it like twice. I don't know who is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either, but I've seen it like twice. But I'm perfectly okay with going into a Disney Park immersive world of Pandora. I'm okay right. with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not, I've never been a huge Avatar film fan. So, you know, maybe this will make me more of a film fan. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Will West in the chat at Mixer.com slash Goldiverse asks a good question. He says, why is Avatar at Disney? Well, James Cameron wanted to be in a park, and he sought out a lot of the different people who create parks, including Universal and Disney, and Disney proposed the best idea and the most willingness to work with him because he wanted to be, you know, like the one that controlled everything, kind of like how J.K. Rowling did with the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and so... They, you know, struck a deal and decided the best place to put it would be in Animal Kingdom, which is actually okay because there was a land in Animal Kingdom that they never actually built, which was supposed to be sort of a magical land with like unicorns and dragons and, you know, mystical beings. And so this kind of fills that role. Um, Plus, let's get real. Animal Kingdom needs something else other than just the nighttime attraction stuff to make it a full day park so i think disney saw the the appeal mm-hmm. of doing something a little different which is okay yeah well, i mean i'm you know what if disney's gonna do it and they, they're gonna do it well which they've been doing a lot lately then i'm cool with that mm-hmm. well i i just I, I don't know uh you know it's gonna be interesting when these avatar sequels come out to see if they're as well received as the original was um that was, you know, it was revolutionary, I guess, in the way it was filmed and, and, and the way people wanted to go experience that movie. But I just remember watching it and not really caring, like walking out and saying, all right, I saw it, you know. <clears throat> and and then hearing that there were, 
people in the moment who are passionate about Avatar, but I just don't see that passion anymore. I, I don't feel like the passion has sustained itself the way a Harry Potter situation has or the way that Star Wars did. Um, you know, maybe Even Star Trek. Well, yeah, and maybe it's just been too long since since the sequel. Maybe we'll see those people come out of the woodwork when those sequels hit in a couple of years, but I don't know. Um, I, I just... Well, yeah, Avatar does not have a fandom the same way that Star Wars or Harry Potter or any of that stuff do. It's not as ingrained into pop culture, but... You know, I, I I would ask everybody that has sort of opinions that are sort of negative about having a place like this at a Disney park to go ahead and check check your negativity really quick because Disney <laughs> does amazing things. Right. I'm serious. Disney right. does amazing things when it comes to their parks. Mm-hmm. And you know, don't bash it until you've been and experienced it. And if it just wasn't your thing at that point, okay. But it, it may be know, it may be that Disney might be the reason that the the sequel has any success at all. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you know, just like I'm not a big fan, but I am more than willing to put my trust in Disney and what they're going to do. And I can't wait to see it. Mm-hmm. So just um, hang tight. Don't don't get all negative now don't we're a, working on positivity people don't be a bunch of <laughs> negative nellies um yeah. so moana's coming up Teresa. yes and, and it comes I out am, tomorrow as we record this i am really looking forward to this movie me too we have a couple of things here about moana that i wanted to address just super quick but uh dwayne johnson and i'm gonna go ahead and take out the rock there Um, because I know he's trying to move away from that. But Dwayne Johnson and Lin-Manuel Miranda, they got interviewed by Collider about this film, and they got super emotional when they saw the end result of the movie. And just so just really quickly, they asked um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, they said, this movie feels like a classic Disney animated movie. How did you go about achieving that authentic feel? And he said that they immersed themselves in the world And then Mark Mancina and him jumped into a studio and just started banging on drums and really tried to find the pulse of the thing in a way that honored the unique musical heritage and incredible rhythms that come out of this part of the world. And then they asked Dwayne Johnson, they said, how do you feel about the way your culture is represented in Moana? And he said, the aloha spirit is something that is very special and very meaningful to us in our Polynesian culture. Those of you who have had the opportunity to visit Hawaii or any of the Polynesian islands know that it's a very special thing. It's an intangible. And when you get off the plane and have your feet on the ground there, it energetically takes you to a different place. He continued on saying, that to be a part of the story and to bring to life a story of our Polynesian culture in this capacity with our great partners at Disney and musically with such masters was just a really, really special opportunity for us. And they get really emotional when they talk about it if you continue to read this article Mm -hmm. and about how much it means to them. And it made me even more excited about going to see it. Well, Dwayne Johnson especially, he focuses in in this article a lot about uh, the Polynesian culture, you know, he is, uh, he's Samoan and, um, you know, and and that is a, that is a culture that very, very much takes their, takes their heritage, um, very seriously and, and reverentially. And, uh, 
and and he and he's really putting it over. He you know he even mentions here at one point that there was a, there was some trepidation from his people. He says you know basically of of what of what this was going to look like when we were showcased. Um, in fact, I'll just read the quote here. There was some hesitance from a lot of people in our culture about what's going to happen if our culture is going to be showcased for the very first time on this level and in, the, and in this capacity from Disney. I can tell you with great confidence that we were in such great hands. Anyone who knows John Lasseter knows that he has manna in his soul and in his body. Um, so he says, I feel like the Polynesian people are going to be incredibly proud of the movie. Uh, and uh, I, everything I've seen from this film... I, I just it makes me more and more eager to watch it. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was an article over on Slate.com that was written, and the title of it was "A Whole New World with Moana." Disney's third golden age gets its Aladdin, and that's what they're calling this age of the films that we are in is the third golden age. And I'm just going to read a short part at the beginning. Um, It says, you'll hear a lot over the next few days about how much Moana, Disney's new South Seas set musical adventure, resembles the company's classic of The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. There's a nautical theme, of course, and the singing crab and the heroine with an intimate connection to the sea. And Moana counts among its four co-directors, two Disney lifers who have made their impact with Mermaid back in 1989, John Musker and Ron Clements. As Disney Animation Studios embarks on a third golden age of animated classics, Musker and Clements are among the the company's final connections to the company's second golden age. But walking out of the rousing Moana with my exuberant kids, I found myself thinking not of the touching and timeless mermaid, but rather of another Musker-Clements film of that era, Aladdin. Like Aladdin, Moana sees Disney broadening its worldview to sample the myths and musical traditions of a whole new world in the case in this case, Polynesian and Pacific Islander culture. And I'm going to finish this paragraph. And just like boring Aladdin himself, Moana's dull titular hero is overshadowed by a shape-shifting trickster played by a big charismatic star. Kids meet your generation's genie, Maui, the demigod voiced by Dwayne Johnson, whose appearance in the film's second act transforms Moana from dutiful Disney adventure by numbers to something wilder, funnier, and way more entertaining. So that's encouraging that because Aladdin is just great. Mm-hmm. We've yeah. talked about how much we love Aladdin. I like how they how um how he calls Aladdin boring. Well, he kind of was. And I well, I mean, I guess when you compare him to the genie, sure, but you know, he's he's the straight man in that relationship. And um and from what I've seen in the previous year, Moana seems to kind of hold her own with Maui more than Aladdin even did with Genie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I, I appreciate the comparison I, and, and hopefully it's an apt comparison. Um, a lot of good buzz coming out of this film. Where does the third golden age begin? Does it begin with, um, Tangled? Mm, I would say that the third golden age either begins with Tangled or it begins with Frozen. Okay. Um, I would, you know, I'd have to do some more research with those in the, in the Disney film era stuff, but it's definitely, we're in that weird point right now where there's sort of a dip, uh, we're we're talking about home on the range and stuff. And then princess and the frog comes out, which is followed by tangled. I would honestly say the third golden age is really, it really begins with frozen, uh, because this will be, 
what I'm trying to think. I need I need my list of animated movies. Um, but I would say probably Frozen. Hmm. Not Tangled. I don't think so. I I think you know Tangled did a really great job. It's a wonderful movie. I love it. But the reception to Frozen was so much bigger mm-hmm. that I would almost say that it's that one. But let's see here. So where do we say the Renaissance began? So the Renaissance began with Little Mermaid. Okay. So Oliver and Company, and then Little Mermaid, and the Renaissance began with Little Mermaid because we mm-hmm. had Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, um, Hercules, Mulan. And then I would have to try to figure out where that one really ends. I'd probably say right after Fantasia 2000 mm-hmm. is where that ended. And then we got into Dinosaur, Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis, Lilo and Stitch, Treasure Planet, Brother Bear, Home on the Range, and now where we are right now, which will be Chicken Little, uh, followed by Meet the Robinsons, and Bolt. Mm-hmm. And then Princess and the Frog. So it's Princess and the Frog was next. And then Tangled. And then when the new Winnie the Pooh. And then Wreck-It Ralph. Mm-hmm. And then Frozen uh, and Big Hero 6. Okay. And then Zootopia. So I would say, I would say from, this is just me. From Princess and the Frog, so after Bolt, mm-hmm. uh, so from Princess and the Frog through up to Frozen might be the second Golden Age, and then Frozen forward. See, I would assume that when they say the second Golden Age, they're talking about that Renaissance period. And then... The fir- they could would, be. Would the first, we could take the, the term Renaissance out and say that's the second Golden right. Age. With the Golden Age of Disney being early Disney movies. Okay. Like and the- then and then if, if that's the case, then I would say, so the Renaissance would be the second Golden Age. So then I would say from the Princess and the Frog mm-hmm. forward yeah. is the third. But in this article, the way they're talking about it is that the third golden age is just getting started. Okay. So if the third golden age is just getting started, then that I would say frozen. So okay. feel free to email us your opinions on this, or post it on Facebook or on Twitter. Well, when you talk you about think. when you talk about an age, I mean, if if you feel like we're in an a if we're in a golden age, if you're saying frozen Zootopia now this, I almost feel like well that you don't have enough information to say we're in a golden age i would have i would have thought that because here's what it looks like and and we'll talk more about this as we move forward in in the films we're discussing but i feel like when you hit bolt that you see a a distinctive shift in the way that disney is doing storytelling in their Mm -hmm. in their movies like you hear and we'll and again this is something we'll talk about in a minute i guess but when we're watching when i'm watching home on the range it's not lost on me that this is 2004 and that Pixar is on top of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I remember back then even thinking, why can't Disney take cues from Pixar? They own Pixar. Why can't they take their cues from the way Pixar does storytelling and just get it right? And, and it seems like they started to do that. And, um, and there was also, and then there was like, oh, they're not doing 
2D animation anymore. And that was kind of, you know, there was a lot of talk about that. And you hit the Princess and the Frog when they finally do that. And that was semi-well-received, I guess. And and you're just kind of, I just remember wondering, are they going to be able to really make it all click? And then they start to do that. Like, you can see them finding their footing from Bolt to to Tangled. And I really do feel like Tangled was the start of something really good because the, again it's one of those things i think when people it has it has the rewatchability factor and it has it has that suck you in with good music with a good story with funny characters and you know it feels like disney and and from there forward i would say that if that if if we're in the midst of a third golden age i would think that that's where it began well I found this article on DisneyAvenue.com just now as we were talking. And, of course, this terminology is subjective. Sure. You know, so this guy could be calling it that, but that may not be how Disney sees it or whatever. But this article came out in 2015, so it's missing a few movies. It came out on August 13th of 2015. So I'm just going to kind of walk through what they're saying. They are seven eras of Disney filmmaking. So the golden age was from 37 to 42. So that includes Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. So that was the first golden Mm -hmm. age. Right. The wartime era, we know what this is, 1943 to 49. Saludos Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Fun and Fancy Free, the package films. And what are they calling this, that era? The wartime era. Okay. Which makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Then they're calling 1950 to 1959 the Silver Age. Right. Also known as the Restoration Age, the Silver Age marks Disney's return to the making of big-budget, full-length films. This era is marked by its beautiful animation with ornate backgrounds with soft colors. These films have an otherworldly feel and make even common-day settings look magical. Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, and Jungle Book. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the Bronze Age, and this is long, from 1960 to 1988. Sounds like comic book collecting all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. The death of Walt Disney spiraled the Walt Disney Studios into the Bronze Age, also known as the Modern Era. The era was a time of decline for Disney, a period of trial and error filmmaking. The Disney Studios struggled to find their way without the guidance and imagination of Walt. The Bronze Age also shied away from fairy tales and focused more on darker, secular stories. And this was when they made the shift from hand ink to xerography. Zero, mm-hmm. So Aristocats, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, Rescuers, Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company. Mm-hmm. Then they go into the Renaissance, which we just talked about. This is 89 to 99. This is and this one I know for a fact mm-hmm. where it starts and ends. Mermaid, Rescuers, Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. Perhaps the most widely agreed upon era in Disney filmmaking, the Disney Renaissance is considered the pinnacle of Disney films. And then they call the post-Renaissance era 2000 to 2009. This is where we are now. Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur, The Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis, Lilo and Stitch, Treasure Planet, Brother Bear, Home on the Range, Chicken Little, Meet the Robinsons, and Bolt. The post-Renaissance era is marked by no common theme, as seen in previous previous Disney filmmaking. What really defines this period of time is Disney Studios trying to find a new method of storytelling much like that of Pixar's. With the exception of Lilo and Stitch, films during this time didn't see much box office 
success and were not wildly popular. However, part of this moderate success was a result of big movie franchises such as Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Good point. So what they're calling on this article right now that we are currently not on the show in, but in real life in, is the revival... What? The the post-post-renaissance. The revival area. Mm -hmm. Era. 2010 to the present. So starting with Princess and the Frog, and this article was only up until Big Hero 6. Mm -hmm. The present era of Disney filmmaking that we are in, the revival era, is also being called the second Disney renaissance with John Lasseter taking over the animation division in 2006. Uh, So there's more on this, but... They are saying, so this would include, they stopped at Big Hero 6, so this would include Zootopia and Moana. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. You can call it whatever you want, but this is, that's kind of, it's a good breakdown, I think. I think that's a solid breakdown, and and to listen to those movies just mentioned back-to-back, you see that there was, in every era, some real quality you know, as much as there was not. And in fact, more often than not, I feel like Disney does a good job. Um, Regardless of the box office success, like you take an Emperor's New Groove, we love that movie. Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of its its box office success. Um, Same thing with some of those package films. You know, they were hit or miss, but there were a lot of hits in there too um, with with those package films that we talked about that seems like now 30 years ago we talked about them. But... It's it's just interesting to me that, you know, Disney, there's no other film company that gets scrutinized that way with, with the movies they put out. No one's looking at Warner Brothers and saying, oh, well, here are the heirs of Warner Brothers films, you know, and how they, and, and, and what they break down into. You know, they kind of get the pass of a studio that's just like making movies left and right, and uh, some hit, some miss, and no one cares. But Disney has this special thing like this, and it's it makes for, for fun discussion, I think. But, um, I, I was just wondering, you know, if this is the third golden age, what was what did you think the first two were? And I would have said, you know, early Disney, like they said, and then the Renaissance being a second golden age, and this being the third. And and I would I would think it would start around Tangled. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, talking about this, the only reason that there's any success is always behind the people or you know the behind the scenes, the people that are running the company. And I wanted to talk about Bob Iger. We've talked about him before, but there was an there is an article that came out on Variety uh, today, actually, and the title of it was "How Bob Iger's Big Bets on Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm Changed Disney's Fortunes." And it's a really good in-depth article. But I kind of wanted to just talk about is Iger's legacy because his legacy is he bought Star Wars, he bought. Marvel, he bought Pixar. And they say he sits at the top of the most successful entertainment company in the world, but deep down he's a person who was never at rest and who was never complacent about success or being in that position. And we've talked about many of the people that have led Disney and, you know, have upset things and have been not great leaders. But Kevin Feige, who is the president of Marvel Studios, said that Despite running the whole shebang of the Disney company, Iger finds time to read every script and have notes on every script. The CEO also watches raw footage from films, giving very good notes on all of the works in progress. He's so involved in everything. 
from the parks to everything else. And, you know, he has taught, he's 65 and he has talked about retiring and it really is kind of scary to think that Bob Iger may not be in the lead of Disney anymore because when he moved in, um, I'm reading this from the article, Iger moved quickly to patch over rough relationships that greeted him when he became CEO in October of 2005. He reached a detente. A detente. Is that what that mm-hmm. word is? A detente. He reached a detente with a pair of dissident former company directors, Roy Disney and Stanley Gold, who had opposed his appointment as the replacement for outgoing chief executive Michael Eisner. In less than two weeks, his announcement of a deal with Apple signaled a smoothing of what had been a troubled relationship with the, computers, the computer makers, mercurial leader Steve Jobs. Three months after that, Jobs agreed to sell Disney, the thriving Pixar animation studios, for $7.4 billion dollars. Gold goes on to say, I had my doubts, but I was wrong, and he was right. He settled things down immediately after Eisner's tempestuous reign. He got earnings up. He got the stock up. How can you even get close to criticizing him? He has done a really good job. And the they expect the CEO, um, Bob Iger, to retire in June of 2018. I don't—I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Like, do you feel like he's really been, like, this legacy on Disney? Because, I mean, you look at when he came in, October 2005. That's right around where we are with the films Mm -hmm. on the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, I I don't think it's... I don't think that there's any any question that Iger has been a huge, huge influential impact, had an influential impact on, on the way that Disney is run. You know... Michael Eisner, the stories of his of his problems there, you know, we all know they're kind of legendary. Um, but what it sounds like to me when you when you read about what this guy has done and how hands on he's been with everything, who does it remind you of? Walt. It reminds Disney. you of Walt Disney. Walt Disney was hands on. He took a personal interest in everything that went on in his company. And I'm not saying that Eisner as CEO didn't do that. We all know if you grew up in my generation, you know Michael Eisner as the guy who introduced, you know, the the Sunday night World of Disney programs that they would show. And he would kind of host, you know, like like they do on AMC or Turner Classic Movie, not AMC anymore, but Turner Classic Movies, you know, he would host when they were showing a movie, he would host it. He'd you know, and he would be from Disney World or Disneyland or wherever he was. And and so you kind of got the idea, well, this is a guy we let in our living rooms, but then behind the scenes you find out that he just didn't really do that great a job, and he let the things get the way they were with Disney to the point that, like, there was a point where at around this time, you know, where people kind of thought, well, Disney's kind of done. You know, they've got, you know, they're distributing Pixar, and that's good for them, but other than that, what do they got? They don't really have much. And, and you have to accredit. Uh, Bob Iger's coming in and and having a mind for not just acquisitions, but allowing creativity and and pushing creativity uh, to, to be where they're at now. I, Disney is booming in a way they never have. And quite frankly, I- even if they didn't have Marvel, even if they didn't have Lucasfilm, um, if all they had was that acquisition of Pixar, uh, Disney would still be a top dog in the market because of the quality that they're putting out in their storytelling and their entertainment. Um, 
and it, and it to me, yeah, I think it goes back to Bob Iger. I don't know that George Lucas would have sold Lucasfilm to Michael Eisner. I hope not. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, seriously, I don't know that he would have. Um, and and I think that uh, I, I did see something the other day that was really interesting about the treatment of Star Wars by Disney since they've acquired the license. And you know, they and 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 the article brought up things like the hyperspace hoopla and everything. Uh, and the stuff that would go on down there. And now you don't see Darth Vader dancing around anymore. You know, you don't see Chewbacca coming out dressed like Axl Rose. And, you know, you, um, and, and there has been a concerted effort from Disney since they acquired the property to protect the characters in a way that they weren't when they were just kind of, uh, you know, hosting them at their parks. And, and I think that Bob Iger has a, Bob Iger and Kathleen Kennedy combined have a lot to do with that. You know, I think mm-hmm. they both realize that these are properties that need our protection and and need to be kept uh, with some level of reverence. And I don't know that a, that an Eisner would have cared so much. You know, it would have been like, how much money are we making from this new movie kind of situation? Right. And um, and I don't want to undercut anything that Eisner did well because there were some things that Eisner did well. You know, but it's almost like he rested on his laurels at some point. So the only thing that Iger is missing is. He's not in our living rooms on a regular basis. Right. He's not hosting, you know, the wonderful world of Disney or what have you. And um, and and if he recognizes that's not in his skill set, guess what? That's not in his skill set, and that's not something that he, that he wants to do and have out there, and that's fine, because everything else he's touched has turned to gold. I mean, I just I love him as the head of Disney so much. So I hope that whoever comes in next is well suited. Uh, I hope we have some time, though. I hope he delays his departure even more. Well, Just they've got it. They're 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 not doing it lightly. There's a plan in place, uh, apparently, uh, for who will succeed him, um, and um, it could it could be that um, that he sticks around a little bit longer than what he anticipates, based on the readiness of whoever his successor would be. But I also think that, um, you know, that with any company like this, that there's going to be some type of weird dip or weird transition between things in in that moment of transition. You know, it's never an easy, smooth thing, no matter how hard you work for it to be that way. Mm -hmm. So we are recording this. Are you, are we good? Yeah. All right, we are recording this right before Thanksgiving, and so I wanted to talk about Thanksgiving box office really quick, really quick, can't talk. Disney's Moana, they are predicting it to kill the box office this coming holiday weekend. Of course. They are projecting it to earn $75 million over its opening five-day period, and to premier, it will premiere in 3,800 theaters, and the majority of those will have 3D showings. Disney has not released its budget, However, most Disney animated films cost upwards of $150 million. So that's what we're looking at here. Its biggest competition, though, is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the Harry Potter spinoff, which debuted last weekend to about $75 million. And that wasn't in a five-day period. That just was over its weekend. Wow. Gross. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was a part of that. And I'm actually going to go see it again today because it is stunning. If you haven't seen Fantastic Beast, make sure you go and do so. 
but Moana's looking like it's going to do really, really well. I'm planning on seeing it this week also, and I'm really excited for it. But look for Moana to basically wipe the floor with everything else. I will look for I'm Moana okay to that. do just that. So. I'm excited for that. Now, we talked about Bob Iger as a legacy for Disney, and mm-hmm. I wanted to get your opinions on Lin-Manuel Miranda being a new musical legacy mm-hmm. for Disney because we have him working on Moana, but we already know that he's working on the live-action Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. We know he's working on the Mary Poppins Returns and that he's shooting that movie and a part of that movie. And... Over on Den of Geek, he did an interview, and I don't know exactly, I was reading through it earlier, but in this interview, when he was talking with Vulture magazine, I believe, he hinted at doing another film, and that is in its earliest stages, that is an animated movie, who with the co-director Byron Howard, who did Zootopia. So... I mean, he was brought in for Moana, and now we've got one, two, three, four movies mm-hmm. with him. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he's getting ready to be, like, the Alan Minken of this new period of Disney films. Or, you know, they haven't really had anybody since Alan Minken. Yeah, you know, you had uh, you had Robert Lopez, who mm-hmm. did Frozen, and they've really leaned heavily on him just for the Frozen stuff. I mean, he's gone and he's done the, uh, for their stage show that they do or their Frozen on Ice, he's had to do some work for them and that sort of thing. And um, to the point to hear him talk, he got a little bit uh, a little bit burnt out on the old Frozen. Um, he also did, what else did he do uh, for Disney? He did some, some something for Winnie the Pooh. I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, in Broadway, um, yeah, the well, Broadway musical. Right, he's done the Book of Mormon and, and all this stuff as well. And so um, I really, I truly, truly think that what happens is when they find someone that's working and willing to do the work, they're going to lean on them, you know. And Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda has, has proven himself as someone who's willing to do the work, who does quality work, you know, does work they're happy with. And as long as he's happy with what they're paying him and he's happy to do it and he's got the create the creative juices flowing, I'm sure they'll they'll use him as much as they can. I, you know, I don't know if in this day and age, you know, some 20 years later, I don't I don't know that you have a situation like you do with an Alan Minkin. I think that uh, you just have someone who's tapped to do they've got a lot of projects on the slate, you know, and and Miranda is just. He's a big name at the moment because of Hamilton um, and, and some of the other work he's doing. But I think that it's just like, all right, well, we've got you scheduled here, here, and here. You know, they probably, there's no telling who they have scheduled to do what else, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but definitely he's prolific. Um, when you talk about the Little Mermaid live action, um, you know, one of the things he says, he doesn't know if he's going to be needed to write new songs. Um it sounds like to me that he may be a music editor, kind of a repurposing songs for the live action situation, that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, he may not be actually composing anything new for that, but I, I can't imagine that he won't be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, he definitely, he definitely is apparently the right person at the right time to be tapping to do these jobs. Yeah, well, I'm excited for it. I think it's a really 
really good move and you know i'm I'm looking forward to see what he does it's mm-hmm. just so interesting he's doing so many films coming up yep. but with all that being said we wanted to talk about since it is thanksgiving um five things about disney that we are each thankful for and we're gonna go through these kind of quick but um these are well just kind of i don't know alternate or something sure why not Okay, so five things about Disney that we here at Disney Vault Talk are thankful for. My first thing is their messages of positivity and hope. That's in, like, every single Disney movie. And if I'm ever feeling down or sad, I can watch a Disney movie. And once I get past the death of the parents of the character, there's a lot of positivity. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Um, you, you sprung this one on me. And so I just kind of listed five quick things real quick. And the first one is, is the funny supporting characters that Disney has, has come to be known for in a lot of their movies. And I'm thinking of people like Scuttle. Scuttle was my favorite character in the little, in the little mermaid. Um, this is a dingle hopper, you know, right up to, to your supporting, to your little supporting characters like Lucky Jack in the movie we just watched and, in, in <laughs> the Rain, you know, like he, to me, he was the best part of that movie. Um, and there were so many Disney movies like that where I just liked those little side characters because of their comic relief and just how funny they were, um, and uh, which made me extra happy when we got the genie in Aladdin, who was kind of that side character just on display, on you know, front and center stage. So um, they're funny stuff from all those little side characters, little quotes here and there that have always just kind of been ingrained in my conversations and in um, in our little family. Mm-hmm. So my second thing is sort of along that line, but kind of focusing on the main characters, but they've created characters that are like my family to me, you know, then I listed five really quick that off the top of my head. And so this is like, you know, when you do those word association things, mm-hmm. now I know who my favorite characters are. Um, Simba, Anna, Lightning McQueen, Stitch and Mickey, <laughs> uh, you know, and they're, these characters are more than just characters in a movie to me. There are characters that I want to have pop vinyls of, and there are characters I want to have stuffed animals of, and there are characters that I love listening to their quotes and their songs and YouTube videos and stuff. It's things that people put together because I love them so, so much. Well, I wrote down because you told me to. Um... I just thought you'd want to. <laughs> I didn't want to monopolize the list. Ah, the songs. The songs of Disney. How many songs? I mean, we could right now just start doing a song battle and say nothing but songs from animated films and go back and forth and have a three-hour show. Yeah. Going back and forth with songs that we, you know, and just be, I mean, for everything from um, Someday My Prince Will Come to... Let it go to oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day. You know, they're just, they're memorable songs that you love to sing, that they get, they're earworms, they get stuck in your head. And a Disney movie, and and some of these movies we've watched that don't have songs in them, you know, that aren't musicals, have felt a little out of place because they're not musicals. And and you kind of want those songs to sing. And and you, you watch something like the, the Beauty and the Beast live action trailer and you realize just how much a part of, of the fabric of pop culture and in and, and our lives these these songs have become. And um 
and as much as they'll get stuck in my head, uh, you know, they're good stuff. So my third thing is quotes to live by thanks to Walt Disney. I don't know how he did it, but he came up with like a quote for everything. He had writers. He had writers. <laughs> I could live my life in Walt Disney quotes. Yeah. He's uh he he knew how to inspire people. Like it's kind of fun to do to do the impossible. I love that one. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. Uh, my next one I wrote was Baloo the Bear. Just straight up Baloo. I love mm-hmm. Baloo the Bear, and I love what he represents, and I'm okay with comparisons being made um, when people compare me to Baloo because, uh, you know, everyone likes to see themselves in art, and when I see the art of Disney, whether it be the live-action Jungle Book or the original, there's Baloo, and I love him. And he scratches his back like I scratch mine. With a tree? Yeah. Uh, so my next thing was my happy place, Walt Disney World. Thank you for making a place that I can go, that I can get away from everything that bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my next thing I wrote down was Goofy, period. Oh, of course. I, Goofy is, is some the classic Goofy cartoons I can watch and over and over and over again. I absolutely love the character of Goofy movie was one of those things that I was so worried. I remember when it came out, I was like, oh, they're going to ruin Goofy. And they didn't. It was just a beautiful movie. And um, and I just, I love him. He's He is, he makes me happy just to look at him. It does Goofy. So, yeah, I'm thankful for Goofy. And my last one, kind of similar to my first one, which was Positivity and Hope, but it was the unforgettable messages about life and love that I have learned through Disney films and have opened my eyes up and helped me sort of reframe the way that I'm approaching my life and try to remember to live my life like a Disney character does. My last one I put down was magic. There is something magical about Disney, and even as a 40-year-old man... um, to to sit down and and watch an hour and a half long cartoon movie um it takes you to a magical place it it has a way of transforming you no matter what age you are into being eternally youthful uh you know Walt Disney said as you the quote you said it's kind of fun to do the impossible that's magic i mean that's straight up magic to walk into a park and to be cut off as you said from everything to be able to get away from everything um, and to be given an experience where, uh, you know, you just leave happy. And if you don't leave happy, it's kind of, it's kind of on you most of the time. Um, Then uh, that's magic. That's magic. And, and it's good to know there's magic in the world. Yep. Agreed. So what are you thankful for? Send us an email and let us know what you are thankful for when it comes to Disney at vaulttalk at gmail.com. All right, it's time for something we haven't done in a long time. What's that? Less than five-minute movie reviews. I'm going to do three in less than five minutes. All right, go. Okay, wait. Hang on. I have a timer. Ready? Start. 
All right, so the first one is The Good Dinosaur. I got to see it on the plane over to Disneyland for free. Thank you, American Airlines. And this is the Pixar movie that sort of has roles reversed where there's a dinosaur who talks and a kid who doesn't talk. And it was really, really good. I was surprised because I thought it wasn't going to be that good, but it actually really was. And it made me cry like three times, and I got mad at it because I'm like, stupid Pixar, and you're stupid making me cry. And there's just this moment where you get to learn about where the little boy came from and they just do it in pictures because he doesn't know language and he doesn't know how to talk. He also doesn't know how to walk on two legs. He walks on four legs and he runs kind of like an animal. But it is really cool and it has a really neat twist at the end that I was not prepared for. But if you haven't seen this movie and you were kind of hesitant about it, you really should see it. It's a really cool take on the world of dinosaurs. And it's interesting because you get scared of T-Rex uh, dinosaurs all the time. And the ones in this movie are like cowboys. And it's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> and they tell some really cool stories and they're not scary at all. And there's some raptors, though, that are freaky. And then these like bird dinosaur things that are just terrifying. And there's some moments in there where you get really scared about whether or not your main characters are going to die. And I did get scared. Like, for for serious. That's not even really a good phrase, but it was true. And I really enjoyed it. And then the second one I got to see was Alice in Wonderland Through the Looking Glass. And I watched this one on the way back from Disneyland. Thank you, American Airlines, for your free Disney movies. And I was like, maybe, let's see, what should I watch? And there's a lot of movies to watch. And I decided to watch two Disney movies that I haven't seen before. So this was the next one. And I had wanted to get to the theaters and see it, but I never did. And I was a little bit hesitant on this one, too, even though I really liked the original Alice in Wonderland live action with Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter. And I was pleasantly surprised. This one is better than the first one. The story is the, the storytelling's much better. There's a lot more, in my opinion, at stake that you can actually feel. I was sort of nervous about the character of Time that's played by that one guy that played Borat. I don't remember his name. But... He was actually a really neat, interesting character, and you get some background into the Queen of Hearts and Anne Hathaway's the White Snow Queen. I kind of get her confused with the Queen from Narnia. Sort of confusing, <laughs> but different people. And it was really good. There, It wasn't as trippy. The um, Treasure Cat didn't have as many lines as I wish he did, but there was some really neat stuff in this, and you really got to learn a lot about the characters. You also got to see a really neat development with Alice's mom, who gets on my ever-living nerve in the first movie, and she was doing the same thing in this one, but just wait, watch the whole thing, get to the end, but give this one a shot. I, I really enjoyed it, and they did some really cool stuff with visual effects. Uh, it really expands on the Alice universe. And I really liked it a whole lot. I'm not sure how true it is to the book, though, because the books trip me out and I can't I can't finish them. I feel like I'm on some sort of an acid trip when I'm reading them and I don't enjoy that. So I can't read them. The next one is Elena of Avalor. It's not really a movie, but it's the TV show on Disney Junior. And I've been recording it and I finally have most of the episodes that I can actually watch them in order. I was hesitant. You guys know I was hesitant because, you know, I wanted a Hispanic Disney princess that was actually going to be in a movie on TV. And this was a TV show or not a movie on TV, a movie in the movie theater. And this is a TV show, but it's done really well. And I like so many of the characters. The music is beautiful. And 
I don't know. It surprised me. I actually really, really like it. I saw lots of little girls at Disneyland dressing up as Elena, and I thought that was really cool that it's starting to make that move to being in the culture. Also, I've heard Elena has started meeting and greeting at the Disney park, so I would love to meet her. Um, but the TV show is, it is really geared for little kids. It's, it's definitely a Disney junior show, but the message behind it is really good. And her little sister is just a great character. And there's just these cool, like flying cheetah cat things. I'm not exactly sure what they are. Um, but they're really funny. And it's a, it's a family story. It's a family story and it's awesome. Okay. I'm done. 20 seconds. All right. (laughs) Indeed. That was under five minutes. Well done, Teresa. Well done. Let's talk about Home on the Range. Uh-oh. Uh. cows who've never been off their farm are to scour the entire west for a wanted outlaw bring him in and collect the 750 dollar reward all in less than three days what let's not put the cart before the horse awesome though i am fabulous it all starts with three bodacious bovines who have a little patch of heaven all their own i know a place as pie the river bend hits up with the end of the sky don't go near any luau's, though. I'm telling you, they're gonna auction off Patch of Heaven. I think we all know what happens now. What? Now we all get eaten. But who would eat a chicken? <laughs> Come on, guys. Time for a little bovine intervention. And get this. To save their farm, the cows turn into bounty hunters. We're looking for a cattle rustler named Alameda Slim. Yeah! I think these cows got it in for me. Come on, girls. We've got a farm to save. Ha! Bovine bounty hunters. Now I've seen everything. Come to the land where the wind has targeted. He must be taking stupid lessons from that buffalo. You cows are fierce. So Home on the Range is a typical Wild West movie without your typical Wild West stuff. Instead of the cows being the victims, the cows are our heroes. The cows save the day. It's what every child ever wanted in 2004 were three milk cows to look up to, to call their own heroes. And by God, they got them. Along with Cuba Gooding Jr. as a horse and a bunch of humans who really didn't know anything. And Randy Quaid, before he went crazy, or just before he went crazy, maybe he was already going crazy, as a yodeler. That's Home on the Range. 
There's really not much more to say about it. But here's Teresa with some history. I'm sure you know everything there is to know about the castle. Oh, well, actually, I, uh, yes, I do. As you can see, the pseudo facade was stripped away to reveal a minimalist Rococo design. Alrighty, we are on Disney's 45th animated feature film. It was released on April 2nd, 2004. Two very mixed reviews, and it did underperform at the box office, which we're going to see a lot as we move forward. The idea was originally pitched around 1995, and it was supposed to be a combination of Captain's Courageous and a Western. I don't really know what Captain's Courageous is. Didn't bother to look it up. The story originated as a supernatural western about a timid cowboy who visits a ghost town and confronts a cattle hustler named Slim. Well, that story was dropped, and it was later conceived into a story about a little bull named Bullets that wanted to be more like the horses that led the herd. And then that story went bye-bye. And then in 1999, in an attempt to try to salvage the production and retain the existing characters and background art, story artist Michael Abash suggested a different approach to the story with one that involved three cow protagonists who become bounty hunters to save their farm. And that is what we are left with when it comes to Home on the Range. Mm. Now, Home on the Range didn't really begin production until around 2000. It was, of course, released in 2004. It was released on VHS and DVD on September 14th, 2004, and it was released on Blu-ray on July 3rd, 2012. I'm pretty sure it's still out there. I'm pretty sure they don't really care (laughs) about it being out there, or in the vault, or not, honestly. And it was it has a 54% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I wanted to read this review from Roger Ebert back in the time from the mm-hmm. Chicago Sun-Times. And he said that he gave the film a 2.5 out of 4 stars, saying that a movie like this is fun for kids, bright, quick-paced, with broad, outrageous characters. But Home on the Range doesn't have the crossover quality of the great Disney films like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. And it doesn't have the freshness and originality of a more traditional movie like Lilo and Stitch. Its real future, I suspect, lies in home video. It's only 76 minutes long, but although kids will like it, their parents will be sneaking looks at their watches. I can't disagree with anything that he said there. Yeah, no, me either. On its opening box office weekend, Home on the Range grossed about $14 million in box office estimate numbers, opening fourth behind Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Oh, that's terrible. Walking Tall and Hellboy. Hmm. Over its lifetime, lifetime domestically, it only did $50 million. It is estimated that its budget was $110 million. And worldwide, it only did 103 million. So it lost. Look, here's the thing. I want to. We got to get to fun facts. I know, and I know we're going long on this episode because we had so much to talk about in the Disney Watch. But this original idea, um, a supernatural western about a timid cowboy who visits a ghost town and confronts a cattle hustler named Slim, that sounds like a good story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it really does like you could almost do a ghost and Mr. Chicken kind of thing with it you could do a shakiest gun in the west idea I don't know about Captain's Courageous Um, but I like the I really do like that idea and the fact that it somehow devolved into three cows being bounty hunters to save a farm Uh, 
Here's Teresa with some fun facts. Fun facts! Woo! Say it proud and geek out loud. It's fun facts! Fun facts. All right. So this was the last 2D animated Disney film released until Princess and the Frog came out in 2009. So it's it was its last traditional 2D right. animation, which is, it, that's okay. And it was the, also the last of Disney's animated classics to be released on VHS. Uh, there goes that. Like, is this really the one you want to go out on? <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of where we were at. And I remember the conversations about this killing 2D animation. This yep. movie being the one to do that. Um, it didn't kill VHS, of course, but yeah, this is... Maybe it did. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but this is Alan Menken's only project in the post-Renaissance era, a.k.a. the second Disney Dark Age. Wow, there's another name for it. All right, moving on. <laughs> we've, we've already tackled that subject. His next project, Tangled, was released in the Disney revival. Mm-hmm. So... He was like, no, I'm not having anything to do with any of this right now. Sorry. Well, and, and I mean, and remember how long these projects take to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm, anyhow. This was also the last trailer to use the voice of Mark Elliott, who we've always talked about, like, who are the people that do trailers? Yeah. Now, Mark know, Elliott. And the- I never his name until now but apparently he's the disney trailer guy new from disney so, that guy yeah he's the voiceover artist um legendary disney movie trailer voice actor mark elliott and let's see let's look at this little bit of information here best known as the primary voice for walt disney entertainment from 83 to 2008 he also provided voiceovers for trailers of non-disney films um Various theatrical trailers such as non-Disney animated stuff, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rock-A-Doodle. Uh, there's a bunch on here. I'm just looking for some of the cooler ones. There was um, Egypt. There was a cool thing. I forget. It was for a. Uh, it was for a award show or something, and it had all these different trailer guys. Five Guys in a Limo is what it's called. And I'm I'm looking at it right now. Um, I don't have it pulled up where you'd be able to hear it, but they're basically Don LaFontaine, the guy who's in a world, that guy, um, and Mark Elliott, and then a couple other trailer guys, and they're talking to each other as their trailer voices. So, like, Mark Elliott at one point is like, in a heartwarming new feature film, that kind of thing. And you got Don LaFontaine, in a world. And it's just uh, they're back and forth being kind of funny. So, so this was the last trailer that he did the voiceover for for them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Now, in February 1998, Alan Menken had signed a long-term agreement with the Walt Disney Studios to compose songs and/or scores for animated and live-action motion pictures, which is just pretty cool in of itself. Mm-hmm. So he was put on Home on the Range, and he and his uh, I forget who it is that he did this one with, but he wrote the first of the film's six original songs back in 1999, the first of which was Little Patch of Heaven, recorded by Katie Lang, before the directors were brought on, Finn and Sanford are their last names. The following songs, including the villain song, Yodelatalitalala, <laughs> okay. which incorporates the, that's not how you really say it but the yodeling one i believe which i believe you say it, i believe you say it like this yodel a little okay so mm-hmm. you do it much better thank you 
incorporates the William Tell Overture, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and the 1812 Overture into the Yodel Dance. Um, let's see. And then, following the September 11th attacks in New York, Minkin composed the song Will the Sun Ever Shine Again in reaction to that, which was performed by Bonnie Raitt. Now, I knew this because I was doing the show notes and watching the film at the same time, and I knew this before I heard that song. And when I heard that song, I was listening to it through the lens of a reaction to September 11th, mm-hmm. and I started crying. Oh, okay. Because if you look at it through that lens, it's much it's much more impactful. Mm-hmm. So, Now, the film got a PG rating due to Maggie's opening line where she talks about her udders. <laughs> which also sort of sets the tone for this film mm-hmm. of, huh? Yeah, what are we going for here? And this yeah. was, and but now this was in an era where you had things like Shrek, that had been super popular, and you know I'm not saying obviously uh, they were making this while Shrek was being made, but you know that's a movie that's one of those well maybe not because Shrek was 2001, and Shrek was a movie that was you know looked like it was for kids but had a lot of grown up kind of jokes and humor in it. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you feel like that kind of stuff was thrown in there. The other joke was thrown in there to kind of, to play that game, if you will. I don't know. I, I just, I haven't seen this in a long time and I watched it again. I was like, uh, huh. So, okay then. That was what I was thinking to myself. Now the working title for the film was Sweating Bullets. Mm-hmm. That was its working title. This is the second Disney film to star Jennifer Tilly and Steve Buscemi, or Buscemi, however you want to say his name. But the first one was Monsters, Inc., so the Pixar film. And then Alameda Slim is actually named after Wilf Carter, also known as Montana Slim, who's a famous country singer and yodeler. So that's kind of cool. Now, in one scene, we see a little boy who's blowing bubblegum. Do you know why this is inaccurate? Because there wasn't I mean, gum other in the than Old the West? the fact that you've read this. <laughs> no, because there wasn't gum in the Old West? There was not gum in the Old West, and it was not commercially sold until 1928, and this film takes place in the Wild West in the 1880s to 1890s. Okay. Continuity error. Well, we call that an anachronism. Okay. And then also, the song Old MacDonald, mm-hmm. not written until 1917. Yeah, well, maybe they wrote it. Maybe. Now, the plan for this, the the big plan at the end, <laughs> right? this is interesting, is to put 5,000 cattle onto one train. Mm-hmm. If you use the standard 36-foot, one-deck stock car common to the steam train era, that would require a train about three miles long. The train they showed did not have enough cars or engines for that. So that's going to be where we get hung up on this movie? Well, you know why not? Okay, that's going to be our that's going to be our sticking point with this movie. Is is that um, Daniel Lenny makes a great point in the chat at mixer dot com slash goldiverse. He says cows didn't talk until nineteen thirty one. True. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with anachronisms and little things like that. I mean, it's an animated film, and and I mean, if you want to talk about things that weren't around, just watch all the stuff that the genie does that he pulls out and. Um, I mean, he's talking into a microphone at one point um, in uh, in Aladdin. So, 
you know, you just got to let stuff like that go, chewing gum and stuff like that go. But, um, as I said, I don't know that those are the things that you need to get hung up on about with this movie either. I love the fact that it'd be a three mile train. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm surprised that they didn't do a three mile train and make a point that it was a three mile train, that kind of thing. But, um, I don't know, like, this movie just seems like it, back up in the history section, you know, you say that it was, that 99, they, they made an attempt to salvage the production and retain all the existing characters and the background art and stuff that they had already done to just kind of keep the work, and that's really what this movie feels like. Well, we've started it, we might as well finish it with something. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's really what this movie feels like to me, and I don't, you know, we don't like to be negative, you mentioned earlier, let's be positive and everything. And there are things I have to be positive about, but I just got to get that out of the way immediately that this movie really does feel like to me we had nothing else better we could do with it, so we did this. That's sad. But you know what? I think this was also the really first Disney movie with the voice acting talent where they went in, they went for gold, and they probably had to because of Shrek to get big-name actors. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see that switch away from voice actors to big name actors to try to draw people in to go and see it. So we had Roseanne Barr, Judy Dench, Cuba Gooding Jr., Randy Quaid, um, Steve Buscemi, Patrick Warburton, Estelle Harris. And this is huge for me. I didn't know this at all. And this is just like, I'm a Texan through and through. And this lady just, she's amazing Former Texas Governor Ann Richards makes an appearance in this movie as Annie, the saloon owner. And I put a picture for you right there, Steve. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's who that is. And I was like, I, I I saw this afterwards, so I had to rewind it. And I'm like, holy buckets. It's Governor Ann Richards. <laughs> Made me very excited, but also very sad that mm-hmm. the Disney movie she got to be in was Home on the Range. Yeah. Well, and this is also kind of a weird one to me in that if you go back to other movies where you have talking animals and people are involved with the talking animals, a fox and the hound, a lady and the tramp, uh, 101 Dalmatians, um, uh, not so much Oliver and company, but when you have animals that talk and there are humans that are involved... You have one of two choices. Either the humans can understand the animals, a la Cinderella and the mice, uh, and they can actually have conversations. Or the animals have their own little world that, that the humans can't understand. And, and the rules that were set up in this movie were the humans can't really understand the animals talking, and they don't understand that the animals have their own little world and hierarchy and that sort of thing. So that led me to immediately, and again, this is, probably because I'm a grown-up and just won't go with the story. But I immediately thought, how are you going to arrest Slim and bring him back and expect to get paid a, a reward for that? Your cows. What, how are you gonna, why would he pay you a reward for doing this? And, and fortunately, to their credit, they got around that by the end of the, by the, end of the movie. You know, and he's like, well, your cows can't really do much with this, but let's save your farm with it. Um, but still, I was just like, ain't nobody going to give no cow no bounty. That's, it just ain't going to happen. Yeah, but notice how nobody questions it. Right. <laughs> they're like, well, your cows can't have the money, so how about you have the money since they're your cows? 
Well, and that was, and I didn't have a problem with that. I'm like, well, good. They explained around it. But what would have happened had the story gone that they did not crash into the farm on the day of the auction, but rather they rode into town with Slim Goodbody or whatever his name is, um, strapped to their back and just walked up to the sheriff's office, you know, would he have given them money at that point? I don't think so. I don't think he would have. I don't know. He was kind of in love with that, with the lady. Well, maybe. He knew they were her cows. He probably would have been like, oh, this is $750, the exact amount that she needs. <laughs> For her conveniently priced uh, debt. <laughs> so here, I'll just pay her debt and then mm-hmm. take her some flowers and yeah. return her cows and say, hey, somebody paid off your debt to the bank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. You yeah. know, he really could have. He could have assumed all of the heroism that way. Yeah. But as it, as it stands, he just was there. And I guess they still were lovers? I'm not really at sure. End, what what, what did their relationship I'm end up I'm just glad being? there were no babies that showed up at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, they all won that first. Awkward. They all won first place. They did. Even the little chickens. Mm-hmm. That their, their ribbon was bigger than their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, these are the little things that Disney does that make movies entertaining. And even though this is not a great movie. Now, it's not terrible by any means because mm-hmm. no Disney movie is terrible. Let's get that out of the way. Okay. There's none that are just downright terrible. Challenge accepted. There's some that aren't great, mm-hmm. but there's entertaining parts. Mm-hmm. Little chicken with big ribbons is entertaining. Little tiny chicken that crows like a rooster, also very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, it. that was that was cute. And, and the... Uh... A lot of the animal models felt very familiar. Like that rooster, the actual rooster there on the farm, wasn't too far away. You you color them a little bit differently, and and put a put a little bit of puffy sleeves on him, and suddenly he's the he's the um, he's the rooster from Robin Hood. It wasn't a far step from him to the rooster and Robin. And that's one thing I've always appreciated about Disney animation is they stay pretty consistent with their designs for their cartoony type animals. Like there, there's, <laughs> there's some type of, of, and so I appreciated the familiarity there. Um, you know, and, and look, and I, and I said it, I did like old, uh, old lucky rabbit or whatever his name was. He was, uh, he was a favorite of mine. He had a peg leg. Yes. Oh, when and look, I saw it coming a million miles away. But when the with the train thing, the train, yeah, when the switch broke, and you look down, you just see that one hole. I'm like, oh well, the peck leg rabbit's about to get used as a switch, <laughs> and then he can't get out, and he's like, we'll catch up. Happens all the time. <laughs> he says this happens all the time. <laughs> Lucky Jack. Now. If you had to pick a favorite cow out of the three, Maggie, Mrs. Calloway, and Grace, mm-hmm. who's your favorite? Uh, Grace. <laughs> oh my god, she's funny. Yeah. She's so, like, holistically organic foods. Mm-hmm. Like, she's kind of like the Fillmore yeah. from Cars in this movie. And she, when she tries to redirect the little pigs, and she's like, 
there's a peaceful way to settle all of this. And they're like, kill the goat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, now her singing. Best mm, thing of the whole Oh movie. my gosh. Let me tell you something. <clears throat> it takes talent to be able to sing terribly flat. And she did a fantastic job of it. I, I love that kind of stuff. When, um, when someone just sings wrong. And, you know, here, of course, it's not on purpose, but it, it is. You know, I mean, and, and I, I was all about it. I thought that was hilarious. So it was like you say, yeah, there's some good stuff about this movie. But as a whole, for me, it, it didn't quite work out. Um, I did like Jeb the Goat. Since we mentioned funny. him. Um, he's like, that can is a family heirloom. <laughs> well, and he's voiced by one of those people that it's like, he, he's voiced by one of those people that's that guy, uh, Joe Flaherty, um, who has been in a lot of different things, uh, SCTV and stuff. I, I was first aware of him way back in the 80s on a little show called Ed Grimley, a cartoon called Ed Grimley the completely mental misadventures of Ed Grimley. And he played a live action um, character in this film, in, in this in this cartoon. He'd come on and he was dressed up like a Count Dracula and he was kind of like one of those cheesy old showing the old scary movies, you know, uh, person. But he also is the Western Union guy in Back to the Future Part Two. Oh, okay. That's where a lot of people know him from. But he's, he's one of those that guys. Um but yeah, Jeb the Goat was funny to me. Cuba Gooding Jr., you know, was obviously a grab for them to have a big name voice. But, you know, I'm listening the whole time and I never recognized him as Cuba Gooding Jr. while I was watching this movie. Which I'm means like, he did a good job. I guess. But at the same time, you got the reason they got him was because he was Cuba Gooding Jr. And his voice. I feel just, like, the, yeah, go ahead. I feel like, and, and I don't know how to say this without coming across maybe the wrong way, but I feel like he was meant to be, you know, the, the response to Eddie Murphy as a donkey. and Or um, to, uh, who was, um, who was Mushu? Eddie Murphy. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll keep it in the family. Mm -hmm. so, and he just yeah. wasn't, he doesn't have that distinctive voice, you know, to be, or he didn't with this, you know, and it was weird because there were some times where he would dip into, you know, a little bit more distinct. I'm like, oh, I've almost got it. But then he'd come back out. I'm like, I don't, I guess I'm not supposed to know who that is. And then when I saw the voice actor, I'm like, oh, okay, that's who it was. So, you know, the only voices that I really immediately, without checking IMDb, caught were Roseanne as Maggie, Judy Dench as Mrs. And I thought they missed a great opportunity. Callaway, to call her Callaway, Mrs. Callaway, C-O-W-L-O-W-A. Ah, and, clever. Um, and, of course, uh, Estelle Harris as the chicken, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Costanza. The little chicken that was like, who's going to eat a chicken? <laughs> well, she she's also um, Mrs. Uh, Potato Head. And oh I'm yes. packing your angry eyes, just in case. That's that's it. Yeah. I was trying to figure out who she was. Yeah. Thank you. But many people know her as George Costanza's mom from Seinfeld. And uh, and I recognize Steve Buscemi. But they also 
Wesley was also animated to look like Steve Buscemi. Very much. So, um... I did think it was funny that Alameda Slim was calling him Mr. Weasley. I mm-hmm. was like, okay. Yeah. And I didn't recognize that as being Randy Quaid whenever he spoke. Like, I was surprised no. that it was Randy Quaid. You know, are you serious, Clark? That kind of thing. So, <laughs> I did like the uh, the brothers. Oh, um, they were just stupid. Not not that they were stupid. I like them as characters, but they their characters were stupid. Well, they were supposed to be. Well, I know, but I mean, like, almost overdoing it on the stupid. Who are you? What have you done with... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I thought they, that bit made me laugh. And when he say, he's got him sat down, he's like, now look, here I am. I'm Alameda Slim, but when I put on this hat and these glasses, where'd Alameda go? Where'd Mr. Slim go? You know, where'd Cousin Slim go? And they start putting up their dukes ready to fight him. That kind of, that bit was kind of funny to me. And then when one of them actually put on the glasses for himself, <gasps> what'd you do with my brother? So, oh, dear. Yes, I remember now. So wow. I, I appreciated the Willie brothers in this movie. Um, now, I did love when Patrick Warburton's horse made his appearance. I was like, there you favorite go. Favorite moment of the movie. And apparently the horse's name is Patrick. Yep. What do you mean a horse whip? What do you... <laughs> he's like, the whole... he's like, gotcha. Gotcha. And then he just takes off running. Oh, so good. Such a good moment. Anytime Patrick Warburton shows up to voice a character, his cadence and the way he talks, I just absolutely absolutely love it so um i gotta tell you i didn't know that about the one song but i was not really taken with the uh with the music in this no the the music's not great but if you listen to that song through that lens Mm -hmm. you'll feel a little bit more emotional about it but yeah the music in this is not very good i wish i could find just a video of grace singing that would be awesome Now you the the you ain't home on the range at the beginning did make me laugh because it talks about being an avocado which is just ridiculous. Yeah, but it's so like I really had a hard time following the words for some reason. I guess I was I had the TV down too low or I was I'm getting old or something. So I I don't know. Um, I, I didn't really catch all the words and all the jokes. And he was talking kind of fast, if I'm being honest. And usually I like that. Usually I like the fast-talking fast talking stuff in songs. Because I'm like, oh, I, it's right. a challenge. I take it as a challenge. Well, the music isn't great, though. I mean, we can, we can play a couple of them. Here's the opening. I just sent it to you. Okay. Uh, it's not good, though. I mean, I mean it's, not, it's not Disney movie good. Well, and that's and I think that's one of the um the uh the the things of this movie that is a detractor is, is that it's not what you come to expect especially after the renaissance era, especially after all that had gone on, you know, with music became such a huge part of Disney again. Uh, through those through those years, and so to get this, it just felt again. It just felt kind of kind of played out or played uh, thrown together, I should say. 
Do they say if you're as soft as an avocado, you're not home on the range? Is that what Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where the men are all tough as cactus. And I did like Alameda Slam's okay. jodeling songs. I mean, I'll, I'll you mm-hmm. know. Well, because it sounds like it's going to be a classic villain song, you know, where he's just kind of describing how bad he is. And you're like, oh wow, we're about to get the the BA of of Alameda Slim here, and then he and then he breaks into the old now listen yodeling. Up. There are crooks in this here west who have claimed to be the best, and they think they wrote the book on how to wrestle. <laughs> well, as good as they may be, not a one's as good as me, and I barely have to move a single muscle. They call me mean, boys depraved and nasty too, and they ain't seen. Boys, the cruelest thing I do. You see, I your little little the sweetest way of rustling yet devised. Cause when I your little little why looky how them cows get hypnotized. He don't prod, he don't yell, still he drives and doggies well, which ain't easy when your chaps are labeled XXXXL. Yes, if you're looking from a bow. But then he goes into like these classical music pieces while he's yodeling, and I just thought that was kind of clever. But you know what? Listen to that, and and then I'm like, oh, I can tell it's Randy Quaid now. Um, I think part of the issue with this movie is the lack of distinctive voices. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think back to, and, and I go to Lion King, you know, Matthew Broderick as Grown Up Simba isn't, it was Matthew Broderick who played Grown Up Simba. Yes. He doesn't have the most distinctive voice in the world, but what he's surrounded by are people with very distinctive voices. Timon and Pumbaa have the whole thing going, you know, where like uh you know, Timon's got that kind of Brooklynish accent or whatever. You know, when he was a young warthog, and 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 Timon's got this thing. You know, Pumbaa's got this thing going on, and, and there's just a distinction. The voices surrounding the main character are very distinct, um, and 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 they add some personality and flavor. There wasn't enough personality and flavor in the voice work in this. I think is is a, is a real thing. So these characters don't grab you as much because. When you're doing, um, when you're doing voiceover work, you know one thing we've learned from our friends in the voiceover community is there's as much acting involved in voiceover as there is in regular acting because you have to, and you only use one tool. You're using the one tool of your voice uh, to act with, and um, if you're not a Roseanne who has that very distinctive nasally voice. Or you're not in this movie, Judy Dench, who is the only British, you know, uh, situation. Or you're not um, uh, uh, George Costanza's mama. Uh, then, um, then you're going to uh, you're going to fall flat. So, well, the only other thing they don't have is story. That's true. Yeah. I, like, again, there's a lot of things lacking from the movie. While it was mildly entertaining, mm-hmm. it was... Mm, yeah. Well, again, I want to see that uh, that original story. I want to see the, the timid cowboy 
in a supernatural western kind of thriller thing um going after the cattle rustler in this ghost town i think that would be be a really cool um a really cool concept of a story to see so agreed um, you got anything else to say about this movie not really, no, sadly. I wish I did. I mean, it, like I've said with every Disney movie, it is, I think it's important for everybody to see each Disney film just so that you've seen it and you can understand what Disney was kind of going through in their process. So definitely watch it. Um, but you probably only need to see it once or twice in your life. Yeah, I think this is the low point. I think it gets progressively better from here. Mm-hmm. So we're looking forward to it. And our next one is going to be next month. We'll do Chicken Little, correct? Yep. Number 46, Chicken Little. We're catching up. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have caught up by next year this time with Disney animated movies. <laughs> so, uh, Teresa, how can people get in touch with us? So in between shows, you can email us at vaulttalk at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Talk. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Disney Vault Talk. We do have an Instagram. Make sure you're sharing us on Twitter and Instagram with your friends so we can get more followers there. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at Ice Cold Penguin. Steve is at Steve Glosson. And then please make sure you are following at Gulliver's on Twitter for our news about every single Gulliver's Network show. We are smack dab in the middle of the holiday season. And if you want to do some holiday shopping and support the shows, you can do so by using the Amazon links as well as the Entertainment Earth links and the Think Geek links that you'll find at geekoutonline.com and geekoutpodcast.com. When you use those links, it really helps us out. You do your shopping as normal. And if you'll click on this actual episode uh, in the show description, there'll be links to things that we kind of talked about or related to things we talked about in this episode that you can uh, use to, to buy if you're interested in those things. For example, some of the movies that were mentioned that may or may not be headed back into the vault soon. We'll put links up there for you to buy, and uh, you can use those things. If you want to support the shows directly, patreon.com slash geekoutloud. And, of course, we have some cool Disney Vault Talk t-shirts that you can find uh, with links at geekoutonline and geekoutpodcast.com. Just click those shirt links, and it'll take you there. Well, that wraps us up, and we thank you so much for being with us. Until next time, I'm Steve. And I'm Teresa. May all your days be magical. And may all your wishes come true. Headed to the wild, wild west. A song that made as much sense as this movie. <laughs>